If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. We're going to be talking about utopia. Good idea, bad idea, something that gives you a lovely, warm, golden glow or something which leads to some of the worst political movements of the 20th century. Let's try and find out. And we've got a fantastic collection of guests here. Uh, on my far left, um, not metaphorically, is um, <laughs> Roger Scruton, who's a conservative philosopher, composer, political thinker, author. He's written over 40 books. That is extraordinary. Um, Natalie Bennett, leader of the Green Party, former journalist, um, and she's also founder of the blog Carnival of Feminists. And Philip Blond here, uh, also a political theorist and theologian, leading proponent of red Toryism, um, which I'm sure you can explain later if you like. Had great and, <laughs> and he uh, runs a Respublica think tank and focuses on dismantling the traditional political binaries of right and left. So you're politics fluid, are you? Yeah, but um, not fluid. quite like Trump. No, no, I should take not. <laughs> I'm going to ask each of the speakers to talk for roughly five minutes, and then we'll start a proper debate. Roger. The record of utopian thinking is not that good if we look at um, the history. Uh, let's say when people have tried to put utopian ideas into practice, very soon there's been either collapse into anarchy or, as in the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution, uh, a kind of universal terror. So uh, one's inevitably going to be skeptical about it. So what is the place of utopian thinking in human life generally? I, I think myself that if you look at the literature, when artists and writers uh, and uh, philosophers have tried to think it through, in the end, it either becomes abstract and vague, like in Thomas More's Utopia, or William Morris's News from, uh, from, from Nowhere, or, or if they really take it seriously and try to work out the details, it becomes a dystopia, like in uh, George Orwell's 1984, um, or, or, or um, <coughs> Animal Farm, and so on. And I, I suspect that this is 
the nature of utopia. It is either abstract and therefore nice, or concrete and believable and nasty. Uh, and the history seems to bear that out, if, if we look at what has happened when utopians have got into power. Uh, it doesn't follow from that that utopia isn't part of our human makeup. Maybe we have to imagine things in this way in order to have some kind of boundary to our thinking. You know, with, uh, you, if we go too far in that direction, it's utopia. And therefore, we shouldn't go too far in that direction because we know that utopia is a sign that we're thinking of the impossible. Uh, so uh, one of the lessons one might want to learn is that although it's right to have this idea, it should serve as a warning rather than as an inspiration. I guess that's my view of things. Great, thank you. Natalie? To start off with, what is utopia? And of course, I'm sure this being a, an educated audience, many people will know that Thomas More coined the word, uh, and it actually means from the Greek, no place. So we were asked to, to answer the question, why are utopias so difficult to achieve? Well, I'd say they're difficult to achieve because they're not actually meant to be achieved. They're ways of thinking about both what's wrong with our current society and how might we improve it. Uh, and that's something that I think we desperately need many more utopias now. We need people imagining a different kind of future because what we've got now is such a mess. We've got combined economic, social, environmental and indeed political crises. And, you know, I don't think it's utopian to imagine a House of Lords, a second house that's actually elected in a really radical step for British politics. Uh, that's not utopian. I think that might be described as democratic, really. And I think one of my favourite utopias is Ursula Le Guin's In the Dispossessed. Um, great book if you haven't read it. Uh, and one of the key elements of her, one of the classic undergraduate essays to write about it is, is this a utopia or a dystopia? And I'd say that very useful thinking, the kind of utopian thinking that's most useful, also incorporates the kind of dystopia, the sense of this is how we might improve things, but these are the risks if we head in that direction. And I think in the way the world is today, one of the things we really desperately need is hope. If we want to measure what's actually wrong with our society, if there's one figure that does that, I think it's the figure, the fact that the rate of depression among the under-16s has doubled in the past 10 years. Rate of depression doubled. We need to offer people hope that we can have a better society, a society that works for the common good without trashing the planet. And what we need is many more people creating, presenting utopias, artists, political thinkers. Um, you know, there are an awful lot of um, apocalypse movies that I'll be referring to, and apocalypse artistic works that I'll be referring to later. Um, and what I'd really like to see as fun as they are, is fewer werewolf movies, fewer end-of-the-world novels, and more people painting a picture of what it could work, look like if it all worked out, if we sorted out those economic, social and environmental crises. Now, one of the few books that's actually done, done this is Jonathan Porritt's The World We Made, and that's written as an imaginary history where from 2050 a schoolteacher gets his pupils to write projects explaining how we got to a world in which standard working week is 23 hours, in which we're entirely dependent on carbon, low carbon, renewable energy sources, in which we've got our food supply sorted out, we've got our water sorted out, we've got everything sorted out. Now, Jonathan is a, a very fine thinker, 
Uh, I think even he himself would probably admit that he's not probably written the great English novel in the world we made. So I've got a challenge. I'm sure there are some artists, some creative people, some movie makers in the audience. My challenge is please think about creating utopias in your artistic work, giving people a picture of how the society could be. So my suggestion is um, possibly a rom-com. Uh, just, this is not a political movie. It's a movie where boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl again. And it's set against a world in which we've sorted out our economic, social and environmental problems. A utopia, if you like, but the kind of reality that we actually have to achieve in the next couple of decades, the kind of radical change we have to achieve in our society, in our world, so that we all have a future. Thank you. Philip, does that sound a bit utopian to you? I agree uh, largely with what Roger argued. So let me try and make um, points that sort of um, add, add to that. Let me ask the question, why are utopias prone to danger? Why have they led, and let's be very clear, fascism is a utopia, communism is a utopia, and most of the racial or sectarian violence, IS is deeply utopic, um, are driven by that. Where does it come from? It always comes from beginning from a universal and not a particular. What does that mean? You begin from something that doesn't exist. You begin by not engaging with the real world, with what is around you, which, by the way, is the real source uh, of idealism, which I'll come back to. You essentially invent an abstract world uh, or an abstraction, and then you find the real world wanting, and you attempt to shape the real world into your abstraction. And so what utopias actually are, are deeply, deeply dangerous because they allow us to, if you try to realize an essentially solipsistic or atavistic, at best, or in many cases, they can be racist utopias or sectarian utopias, at the cost of the manyness of the world, the, the complexity of the world. And this is when utopias become fantasy and become essentially lethal. And actually, in pursuit of that, what actually happens is people inoculate themselves against the violence they commit. I was just um, terrified, really, if you look at human history and the level of carnage and, 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 and murder that, that's present in it of, of, of the innocent on an unprecedented scale, often enacted for, for, the, for the sake of fulfilling this fantasy. Now, I don't believe in being a realist either, because if you're just a realist, all you do is endorse existing power and existing hierarchies. You become the worst sort of conservative, which is somebody who just wants to maintain what already is. And in this, I agree with Natalie. I think that what already is is, is deeply problematic, and actually both Natalie uh, has argued and, and Roger has written very movingly about the need for an ecological salvation of the earth, which again, I profoundly agree with. What we need to do is recognize that the ideal and the real occur together. Now, now I'm being very Platonist here, and I am, a, I am a Platonist. And what Plato argued is that the universal doesn't exist outside of its examples. You don't go um, in, uh, into a room and find hoarseness apart from horses, 
or, or triangles apart from triangles. What he actually argued is the ideal accompanies the real. And I think that this is where political thought and reflection needs to reside. Think of human beings. I've always felt um, there's a phenomenological element to morality. That, uh, by that I mean that we can sense human damage when we see it. We can sense the crushing of human beings when we see it. When we see you know, a child who's, whose hopes are thwarted. Or to paraphrase um, uh, Yeats, when people's dreams are trodden on. We know that. So we can, I think, have a very clear sense of the harm in our society. And what we lack is a conceptualization for where that harm comes from. So, so really, what I, the discussion I think we might have um, today is what, what, what can we be idealistic about? And I think, contrary, no doubt many of you went uh, to university um, uh, at the same time as me, or perhaps uh, after me or before, but you all have been infected, I think, or, or been aware of this terrible terrible gene of relativism that has destroyed academia that says everything is as valid as everything else and there are no objective goods presented to us. And I think this has really captured many of our high elite institutions. What this actually means in point of fact is that once you lose objective goods, you lose an objective access to the ideal. You lose an objective access to what's wrong and what's right. So you lose the ability to say that nature as it is is what is valuable. You're constantly trying to improve nature with kind of um, at, at the genetic level. Or people as they are, they're not quite good. So that, you know, let's improve them at the genetic level. So what really is the deliverer of all of our modern fears is we've lost connection with objectivity. We've lost the ability to see um, what should be seen, which is how we ought to live. And I blame the Bloomsbury Group and et al, and I'm with uh, Alistair McIntyre on this. We've separated ought from is. And for me, what I would like to argue is that actually we've got to link ought and is. We've got to actually view the world in which the ideal and the real occur together, which is what Plato argued, and that we can actually see the sorts and forms of life that we ought to live present in this world. And that's the idealism that isn't a fantasy, that doesn't produce a sectarian good you know, for white people or a sectarian good for one sex over another, but actually a good that says, what is the genuine common good that we can all enjoy? And that's the stuff that can really transform uh, and save lives. So okay. to sum up, to sum up, sorry, um, uh, Mary, to sum up, if we really want to be radical, if we really want to tackle what's wrong, don't believe in subjectivity. Rediscover the, your, your, the sense that there are objective, not just material goods, but ideal goods that are open to all of us. And then and only then can we have a proper idealism. Great. So those are your positions. We're going to move on to the possible dangers of utopias uh, in a minute. But first of all, let's talk about the opportunities. Because Roger, I wonder in, in your world, if if there isn't much room for idealism of dreaming what a perfect world would be like, how, is, how are you motivated to know even in which direction to move? I mean, maybe we can't ever, for instance, have a carbon-free world, but we might at least want to mm. aim at that as an end goal and, and, and move incrementally towards it. Yes, I, I, I'm tempted to agree with Philip that the ideal has to be 
united with the real, if it is actually to be a motivating force rather than a mere dream. Uh, and um, in my world, I suppose, you know, I don't have a complete philosophy like Philip has just expounded, which um, a philosophy which is com you know, embraces everything. I am much more empirical. I, I, you know, I can see problems and I look to solve them uh, or to see how they might be solved, but, but recognize that every solution has unintended consequences and will impact on some other problem that we have. So basically, so, you're a Blairite. What uh, works? Uh, that, that sounds really very dangerous. <laughs> I, I, With unintended consequences, of yes, course. No, my, I would say, for me, the procedures are much more important than the results in everything. Uh, if you're facing a problem, does your procedure allow you to, to um, qualify the result in the, in the light of other problems? You know, that's what Parliament is for me. It's, uh, it's not addressing a single issue with, uh, with a, an idealized statement of what we want to achieve. It's somebody putting forward a solution to a problem and somebody else standing up and saying, yes, but that solution will make this problem worse. We have to get together, talk it through, uh, and come to a compromise. Uh, my, and my view is that, the, in politics at least, uh, the best world is the world of, of compromises, where the procedure for resolving problems doesn't create more problems that are worse. Uh, I, I agree that there are ideals as well, and they have a place in personal life. Uh, and the ideal of, as to what sort of a person I should be is terribly important. And I know I'm going to fall short of it. And falling short of it there is not just a matter of, a, of the right compromise. It's a, it's a matter of doing wrong. Uh, but uh, and this is, I'll take up something here that, that Philip said, because I think it's very important. Um, it, as I see it, utopianism involves a transfer into the world of politics of a, of a purely personal thing, uh, that personal thing that religion gives to everybody. The, the idea of what the perfect way of life should be for you and how you would be redeemed from your faults. Uh, so that, why can that not apply collectively if it can apply well, individually? It, it, because it, to apply it collectively means to impose it upon others who don't necessarily share that vision and whose faults might be of a completely unknown kind. Uh, uh, just to take the example of ISIS, it's so obvious there that a, a vision of personal salvation is being imposed upon people who don't share it. Uh, and that's, what, that's the real utopia and, and why it's so dangerous, I think. Natalie. Well, I do think we're seeing some real uh, straw men set up here uh, in terms of, um, you know, there are negative utopias, uh, but then again, there are lots of negative uh, regimes, uh, events from history that had nothing to do with utopia. Uh, as far as I know, Genghis Khan wasn't looking to create utopia. He just wanted to seize power. Uh, and so to say that because some utopias, you know, people who've been using the cover of utopia have gone wrong, I think that's an utter straw man and it doesn't in any way invalidate the whole idea. But can you, you think know, of we any could, utopias that have gone right well, 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 since so, we're so talking about the positive well, well, side Well, well but, but, but let, let me finish on that one for a moment. You know, um, we might say that we have um, a current government that's pretty well conservatism gone horribly wrong. Uh, and that's the way we are at the, at the moment. So, you know, what the so thing can is... can you think of a society which is built on utopian principles that has been thoroughly successful? Uh, no, because as I started out with my original statements, utopia is no place. Utopia is thinking 
utopia as a way of thinking about the future of creating models of direction to travel, it's not something you're actually trying to create in its absolute entity. So you're not thinking of it as a destination, you're thinking of it, 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 it as it, Roger would say, as a process. It, well, no, I think, I think, I think it's, it, it's, it's a goal and an aim that it, it contains within it both the positive and the negative. And so you understand that you're aiming towards that goal and the utopia contains within it an understanding also of the risks and the dangers and the things you need to avoid, which means you're never going to perfectly get to your utopia. And I do just want, want to pick up a, an, another point with um, uh, Roger, you don't want to work a 23-hour working week or whatever. Of course, that implies that one does one thing and one one's head down and, and goes for that totally. Um, we're heading into a different kind of world in which you can contribute in all kinds of ways that mightn't be through your paid work. So, for example, if we go back to uh, Tony Juniper's The World We Made, uh, his main character works for 23 hours a week in his paid job as a teacher, and then he volunteers in the community dark garden for a day a week, then he volunteers another day at another school as a governor. So what we're doing is imagining something different to what we are now. We're being utopian. And I think that's a model that, when we think about it, works very well. But, but, you're, but a politician would say, well, you know, sounds marvellous, Natalie. We'd all love to just work for 23 hours a week. But how are we going to find the money to live? How are we going to contribute enough money to the economy? It's all terribly utopian. This isn't actually practical. Well, well to, to follow through on this idea, because I think it's an interesting one, and anyone who wants to uh, find out more about this, the New Economics Foundation has done a heap of work on this. Uh, and basically, it's the idea that instead of chasing after this GDP growth, which we know can't be decoupled from carbon emissions, what we can do is we say we want progress in our lives. And the progress might be that every year we get shortened the standard working week by 15 minutes. Every four years, you get an extra hour of life every week to do with what you will. Now, that might be utopian, but of course, we're also looking at people coming at this from the other angle, which is people like Paul Mason, who were saying with the rise of automation, there's simply not going to be anything like enough jobs to go around. And so we need to actually redistribute the way we, the whole society works. And I think that's the point I come back to, is we need these utopias. How they essentially need to work is we have to imagine how things can be different. You know, I, th I think very much here, Roger is sounding very, very much like uh, Professor Pangloss. This is the way things are, and they've just always got to be this way. I thought he was a great optimist, Pangloss. <laughs> well, he, he thought that what we had now was exactly the way it should best be. It could, could, best of all possible yes. worlds. We couldn't change it. We just have to live with how it is now. So we have to live with the levels of mental ill health that we've got in our young people and indeed through all of our society. We have to live... No. Well, 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 he was saying that we, we can't change things. We just have to live with how things are and nibble a little around the edges. Well, I, I don't think he said that at all. I, I think that's very silly. Um, I, th I think what... What, I think what's, what's lacking in your account, Natalie, is any recognition of where the real evils that confront us now and have been in the past, where they have, they have come from. And nobody has said um, that everything comes from utopia. But what we have said is some of our greatest evils have come from utopia. So therefore, one must have an account of, of the origin of evil if one wants to stop it repeating. And the idea that somehow utopias are not uh, still live and, and, uh, and active and lethal, I mean, as you say, look at our borders. Uh, and indeed, look in Europe. You've already got nationalist, uh, populist utopias that we can live without other people taking shape. 
So I think, I think really you, you need to be, have a much greater level of critical acuity if you're going to be persuasive, which is to tell us where these modern evils come from. And if we want to protect ourselves against evil, which is what I think all decent, civilized uh, societies should do, we need at least in part to recognize it. And when you said uh, Genghis Khan didn't have a utopia, I think that's undoubtedly true. Um, but, and what he just believed in was power. And this, I think, gets us to the heart of things. What would it be to believe in something other than power? Because if you, if you look at the, the origin of the modern world, I'd urge you, for instance, uh, all, read Goebbels' diaries. He was, he was a very clever man, had a PhD in German literature. Read his diaries. He said something very interesting. He said, um, I paraphrase, um, in a world where God is dead, in a world where there are no objective values, there is only force and power. And what we must be is be the most powerful. And I'd suggest to you that's the world we're living in now. We're living in a world that really people just believe in power. And I think there's Do you a... you really think that? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, think, I think it's unfortunately true, particularly ruling elites. I think... Um, we have a managerial elite in the West. I don't the think West. the Labour Party at the moment believes in power particularly. No, no, no. It believes in, in, in something Security. far worse that sort of somehow in a, a centralised state will take over and run everything in the same way. But the point I'm trying to make is that, that what we in the West, if we want to protect ourselves against evil, which is the real discussion kind of we should be having, we have to rediscover the values that will protect us against evil. That's kind of what, I, what I'm saying. Now, it's true in part... Utopias lead us to evil. Simple pursuit of power leads to evil. What is it in our culture that can protect us against evil? And it's simply this. It's the belief in objective values within which we are all placed and which we can share and which we can discern. Which speaks, I think, to Roger's procedural point. Where no one thing dominates, but we understand that there are nonetheless real values. And that's what the West was built on. And that's what we've abandoned. And that is one of the sources of modern evil. And that's really what we must tackle. Let's disentangle a bit of what Philip's mm -hmm. been saying. He's saying, underlying everything, most, leading, most elites actually just want to achieve power. Now, a lot of the elites that have wanted to achieve power in the past 100 years have done so under the cloak of a vision that is very popular to, that, that is very attractive to the populist, a very populist vision, which may be, we're all going to be equal. You know, it's communism, and we will pull you out of poverty, and, 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 and we will all have the same sort of houses and jobs and clothes and everything. Or it could be, we will all be white and Aryan, and we'll get rid of those horrible Jews, or we will all be Islamic and pure. So there is something about utopianism that creates a vision that seems, at, at least superficially, incredibly popular, and helps these elites gain and hold on to power. Do you acknowledge that? Uh, no, I mean, I think what we're seeing here is, I'm afraid, uh, Philip is coming back to what's really a very simplistic argument, which is there are bad examples of utopia, therefore utopia is bad. Just one example, or a couple of examples that come to mind. H.G. Uh, Wells, a modern utopia, he actually used that to attack the racialist discourse of his time in a very, very strong, powerful, and really quite brave kind of way. Now, that's using utopia for good purposes. One is example, I bet there's some people in this room who are involved in the transition towns movement. 
you could, and I think it's fair to call that a utopian movement. We're aiming to create small, self-sufficient, reasonably self-sufficient local communities where we grow food, where we, li we but don't li admit more... Sorry, Philip, you've been allowed quite a long period of time. Uh, uh, we've, in those tradition town movements, we have seen you know, the idea that we can make a town like hay. We could grow a lot of our own food. We could be a carbon-neutral town. That's a utopian dream that's being put into place in modern Britain today that I think is hugely valuable, hugely important, and I want to defend that utopia. And that's a good utopia. I'm not saying that all utopias are good. Of course, we've heard plenty of examples of utopian thinking that's bad. But this is a tool, a way of thinking, a way of approaching the world that's really valuable, really important, and really essential. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Or you could take, say, Scandinavian democracies, which on the whole have been very peaceful, they're very egalitarian, uh, the governments move from one party to another, and yes, you know, they're not perfect, and they've had a little bit rise of nationalism and racism, but on the whole, people tend to be happier in countries like Denmark and they've been prosperous and reasonably equal. I mean, could that not be an example of a utopia that well, more well, or less works? I think one should recognize that Sweden has the highest suicide rate in Europe. I, I would like to endorse what Natalie has said about transition towns movement, uh, which I wholly uh, believe in. Uh, and I would not call it a utopia. It, it's a, a circumscribed experiment in concrete realities. Here is a town which is going to try as best it can to sustain itself through its own pro product and without uh, polluting the planet and so on. There are going to be difficulties, we might have to compromise, but that is totally within the kind of uh, concept of social order that I, I believe in. Uh, it's not somebody with a, a, an all-comprehending radical plan for the future of mankind conscripting people to impose it. It's nothing like that at all. It's a, a, an agreement among residents to live in another way. I, I, I wrote a little book once, an answer to William Morris, William Morris's News From Nowhere, which I called News From Somewhere. It was simply a description of where I am. You know, uh, the, the little farm which I, which I acquired and which were, I and my wife uh, attempt to make into a, a, a form of life which is not just sustainable for me, but perhaps an example for others. That sort of thing, that's anti-utopian thinking. It's, it's thinking that comes out of engaging with the concrete problems that we cannot clearly foresee, but we know how to um, approach them when they do occur. I think um, you know, that's the sort of thing that I, I imagine Philip is supporting as much as me. I think we've got a problem of definition here, yes. because you are defining utopia as something that has to be imposed on people, and that's where it's gone wrong. But it may be that you could have shared visions of a utopia, yes. which are entirely voluntary, yeah. and those uh, and who I want th to join in do. You know, the, the word you used, which I wrote down, was conscripting. Mm. And of course, there are people who've, who've presented 
created, thought about utopias that did conscript. But the kind of utopias that I'd back and support are the ones at which democratic engagement, democratic involvement, you know, consent is absolutely the core of the utopia. That, and that's any kind of utopia that I can imagine I would consider saying that's something we should work towards, has that consent, that democracy, and it's absolutely hard. The Germans did consent to, to Nazism. But there is well, a, well no, there I don't, is I don't think that's that quite difficulty true. They voted for something at the time. No, the difficulty of the tyranny of the majority. You know, I, I'm, I, of course, um, the parts of Syria controlled by ISIS, no doubt, enjoy the consent of the majority of the people living there. But it's, um, consent is a dangerous thing too. People, you want to know that they're consenting to something that they understand rather than something abstract. And you've got the minorities to bear in mind. Sorry, Philip wants to come in. I think, um, Natalie, you, you have to show some rigor in the concepts you, you deploy. As far as Let's I can. Let's not be too personal. No, 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 because I think it's not true. Not feminine. No, no, but I think <laughs> it's true because, because utopia is being used to describe anything nice and progressive. And, and that, that's just not the case. Utopia has a very specific shape. It's a very specific structure that is genuinely dangerous, what we're arguing. And what, what I argue... But that's the way you're defining no, utopia. No, 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 but I think, I think the consensus would be with me. It's not everything I like as opposed to everything I don't like. And what I argued is that dystopias, and H.G. Wells will be one, are actually very useful ways of criticising the present to enable us to think. The debate we need to have, and I've long supported transition towns, I argue for this, uh, um, gosh, back in tw 2010. What I, what I think we should discuss are what are the limits of legitimate political imagination? How can we imagine another world in a way that engages with the world such that we can genuinely bring it about? The trouble also with utopias is that they don't persuade enough people, so they do end up having to be imposed, which is what makes them so dangerous. Really, what we should be discussing in politics or, or this, this, is why it's so difficult to get practical idealism adopted. That's, that's really the stuff, and I think that what we need to do is begin with what's present it around us and the very commonplace recognition that something's wrong. If you actually poll people, enormous majorities agree that things are wrong, and enormous majorities agree largely with what's wrong in terms of what wrong looks like. And what is worrying for me is on the basis of quite a large political consensus about what's wrong, we are still unable to, to build what's right. And that, I think, is, is the real political dilemma that, that faces us. And that's the role for the political imagination, which is what I think a not, is a non-utopic form of thought, because it's actually about delivering on the ground. Well, actually, we're about to move into this section, which is how can we affect change? So, so actually, that leads very neatly into it. Surely you need some idealism uh, coming from our politicians in order to engage voters behind the sort of change that they want. Aren't, aren't, aren't voters feeling disengaged from the political system because they're not hearing enough idealism, Roger? Well, um, this could be the case. Uh, though... I think one has to recognize that a politician, his, his or her time is taken up by the addressing problems that arise from the existing situation. Of course, there must be the, the background resource of, of uh, human values. You have to believe that there is such a thing as the fulfillment of the human being and that, that we are fulfilled through uh, 
love, respect, charity, and those old virtues that, that we've known you know, about for the last 3,000 years. That's, that's all true. But it, it's very difficult to know just when a politician should summon those things. You know, uh, when politicians turn around with, from their problem of the day and address the nation, uh, appealing to, its fund, to people's fundamental loyalties, their charity, their goodness of heart and their courage, you know, uh, after a while you'd get pretty fed up with that. You'd say, this guy doesn't mean what he says. It worked for JFK, but maybe that was it worked um, to that, that more one, innocent society. Yes, uh, that was 55 years ago when he, when he famously did this. And no American president since then has dared to do it because we are, especially we British people, are extremely sensitive to the possibility of hypocrisy all around us, partly because we have so much of it in ourselves. And when our politicians reveal to us what we are by exposing it in that way, we, with, we withdraw our allegiance. Uh, and I, I think it, you know, it's nice to have uh, a form of politics which proceeds like a court of law, you know, not, not invoking uh, the Almighty all the time, not invoking the, the, the ideals that we do actually have and actually share, but, but addressing the problem. And I, and I, I feel that, um, okay, if, if, it was, if politics was like that, I'd be not happy with it, but unhappy in my normal way. <laughs> when, when Philip talks about practical idealism, I immediately thought, isn't that a bit of an oxymoron? And, you know, we ha actually have got idealism in politics now uh, via Jeremy Corbyn, but he's hopelessly impractical. And, and it may be that the um, two I think that's your conclusion. I don't think that's a statement of fact. <laughs> I, I would love to see how his idealism actually stands up to the practical pressures of having to run the country. Uh, well, I think getting rid of nuclear weapons would be a really positive step. So do you think, I, do you think we need more idealism in politics? And do you think we'd achieve more change if we had more I think more so. Idealism? And I was just actually sitting here thinking, that, that with the two gentlemen on either side of me here, thinking they really are summing up the whole period of the last 35 or 40 years of, of neoliberalism, neo-Thatcherism, managerialism, Blairism. It's what politics has looked like for the past 35 or 40 years. And that's something that's now very clearly actually failed. Uh, we're clearly at the failed point... Failed, why? It, we're well, more well, prosperous. We have a, a global level of debt when you add the uh, private and public debt together of 280% plus of GDP. Uh, everyone's just waiting for the next economic cra global economic crash. We're trashing well, the planet. That's always been the we're, case. Well, uh, <laughs> I mean, the economy moves in cycles. So. Well, yes, but but um, secular stagnation. The whole debate about basically our whole economic system is broken, and that's something that there's a very broad consensus about. So we've had 35 or 40 years of neoliberalism, this kind of managerialism, this kind of idea that things have to stay the way they are. And it's interesting because if you look back over the history, we had after the Second World War, war 35 or 40 years of what you could call the social democratic consensus, and that broke down. So if we think about history and economics moving in cycles, we're at the point now where it's time for something really new, an entirely different kind of politics. And if you think back, those in the audience who are old enough to remember the rise of Thatcher, the whole terms of political debate changed in a very short period of time. We went from a Tory party that was very comfortable with state ownership of the railways, state ownership even of coal mines and car factories, to suddenly privatisation is wonderful, it will solve all of our problems, greed is good, inequality doesn't matter. 
And that change happened very quickly. So I think we're at the point now, and you know, I would say Jeremy Corbyn, and indeed the Green surge with the Green Party last year, where our membership more than trebled and we got 1.1 million votes in the general election. These are signs that politics is changing to a new kind of age. And I would say in a positive way, a utopian kind of age, because the lack of utopia has been our one of our problems. Though actually in the last election, the share of the vote of the two main parties was exactly the same as it had been at the previous one. Uh, well, uh, the last election, people saw as the main choice, a choice between Tory and Tory light. And that didn't change they still anything voted very much. For them. Uh, well, well, they had they had no real choices in terms of. <laughs> they could have all voted green or well, they, down well, or in a first past the post <laughs> electoral system, of course. You could, well, uh, you know, let's let's be really utopian and imagine we had a fair electoral system. I really think that somebody who who doesn't have, obviously hasn't read anything Rogers done or or kind of the positions I've adopted. Only somebody who didn't know anything about, I think, either Roger or, or my work would call us neoliberal or, or neo-Thatcherite. Roger's been so arguing for... Just hear me out. Yeah, Roger's been arguing for... Attack kind the of argument, green, not the woman, Yeah, please. no, no, no. I am attacking the, uh, the, the argument because I'm trying to say that, that this is silly because it's, it's non... It's non <laughs> let me tell you why. It's non-lucid because it's not speaking to the problem. Jeremy Corbyn isn't, uh, isn't bringing anything new. He's trying to restore the 1970s, which wasn't new. The, pro the problem we face is that the problems are getting worse, but all the solutions are old and outdated, and they don't work. And trying to recycle them and claim that they're new is, is, is really a tragedy. What we need to do if we really want to change things is pose the problems at the most acute and somewhat disturbing level, no doubt, in order to have a genuinely different conversation. And we're just not doing that. And unless we do do it, the future won't belong to people like Natalie. It'll belong to people like Front National, Alternative for Deutschland, and Donald Trump. So unless, unless we rethink what it means to be radical, we're really heading for a very, very dangerous resolution of these problems, which again will be a return, because nothing is ever quite the same, to a form of authoritarianism. Okay, so you've just found yourself in number 10. In, in just a couple of minutes, what are your radical propositions for doing things differently? I would like to create a welfare system that didn't just give income, but gave assets. I would like to recapitalize the poor, to give ownership, uh, to those who don't own, since I think the origin of poverty is that people have been denied access to the surplus that they naturally can make. I would tackle the devastating lack of ownership in our country, and I think that would go a long way to changing uh, poverty. Secondly, so people that uh, yeah, secondly, yes, yeah, yeah, but, but creating perpetual new assets. Secondly, I would build on what I've already done. Uh, it was my idea to uh, devolve uh, powers to Manchester. I wrote the original Devo Mank report, which the government, I'm glad to say, adopted. It was my idea to devolve health. What, why I was doing that was to try to create a state that actually could work for the people who desperately needed the state to work. So the centralized state cannot help the poor because the centralized state cannot deliver what the poor need, which is a whole new ecosystem around place. 
that, that, that can craft the multiple factors that prevent human flourishing from the look of a place to education to health and so on. So, so it's kind of my politics, I would argue, that are the more radical and idealistic. And I think that it's only by having those sorts of offers that we can transform things. All we're getting is recycling. I don't know why people are applauding the recycling of radicalism that isn't radical. I agree with you on the applauding of these are problems. I agree with all the problems Natalie said, actually. But the problem is, is the solutions are old. They're not transformative, and they won't deliver the world you want. Roger, well, does that sound dangerously utopian, Philip? Um, Philip's life has been one of speculation about politics and imagining solutions uh, to the, the comprehensive problems of modern society. I, I have not been like that. Um, I wonder whether, you know, Philip has done well out of this because uh, it occupies him for more than 23 hours a week. <laughs> uh, and um, it would occupy me for a day, I suspect, at the most. But I, 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 I don't take the view, the underlying view, which I think Natalie and Philip share, that, that politics cont either contains a full understanding of the problem or the possibility of a solution to what we modern people are. Uh, I see, I think that we are living through a, a, a spiritual vacuum, uh, that we have lost a lot of our cultural bearings, that we don't fully know how to deal with and trust each other. Uh, and in particular, relations between the sexes and relations within the family are uh, under strain. These are things which I don't think can be uh, addressed through politics, and the attempt to address them through politics is one of the things that goes wrong at uto utopias. So uh, I, I would withdraw from the whole business of seeing uh, the, the realm of ideals as being identical with the realm of politics. I would say that we all of us have that duty to address our own private lives and resolve the deep problems there. Uh, and somehow we don't have the resources that once we had. Uh, and, you know, the, obviously the, the, the lack of religion is one part of this problem. Uh, and um, just what the solution is, I don't know. Uh, it, it is perhaps, obviously we have to amend our ways of dealing with each other. Uh, you know, we have to be kinder to each other. We have to recognize our loyalties and commitments. And that, and this I, here I do agree with Philip, that, uh, uh, and perhaps with Natalie too, in her reference to transition towns, that our loyalties and commitments are fundamentally local, that they exist in a place. Uh, and making that place holy to ourselves and the place of our consolation is our primary duty. Politics comes next. Uh, well, I think what Roger's just said really is actually um, both unrealistic and in a way idealistic. The solution is in the individual. And if we bring this down to a concrete kind of level, one of the things that I'm always saying, and I think we've, people understand much more now, that the Green Party is not concerned with individual behaviour. We're not running around telling you how as an individual to live your life. What we need is entire system change. So, for example, there's no point in telling people don't use your car to drive into hay if there's no public transport available. Uh, we need an entire system change to make public transport affordable, reliable, convenient. And until then, people have no hope of changing their individual behaviour. But you but can't I do, say uh, but, it in London, for but, instance. But, uh, yes, but, but not in Hay. But to, to, just to pick up the, um, the specific point um, that uh, 
Uh, Philip said, complaining about offering old solutions. Well, I don't think things like the citizen's income, the universal basic income, the idea that nobody should be left with no money at all, everyone should have that income every week, is an old idea. Whereas I think what he's putting it's forward... It's been around for about 40 or 50 years. No, it Whereas what you've got is you're going back to... Sorry, Philip, you will possibly let me finish a sentence? Thank you. Perhaps. <laughs> I've got a very loud voice, I promise you. Um, uh, whereas what you're offering, uh, the, your revolution is the ownership of assets. So what we have is Thatcher's right to buy writ large, the private society based on private assets, okay. and that's the solution to the world problems. And of course, I'd really invite you to have a look at uh, Philip's solution to uh, Devo Mank in Manchester, which is the de devolving of the responsibility for dealing with things like health and social care without the money or the resources to actually do it, which I think yes. is very neoliberal. Yes. 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 Right, uh, well, on, on that point, I'd like to say thank you very much to all three of you, but particularly to the, all the audience here. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.